Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Museums go out there and they build an expansion, and usually the people that are responsible for it have done it zero times. That's Rich Cherry, co-chair of MuseWeb, the largest museum innovation and technology conference in the world, with about 800 attendees from more than 40 countries each year, and an online community reaching more than 80,000 members which gives him unique access to colleagues working at the forefront of innovation in the cultural sector. Beyond the digital realm, he offers consulting services through museum operations, leveraging two decades of leadership experience in museums and nonprofits, and three decades of technology and operations experience. He has served as an executive director, COO, deputy director, CTO, and CIO at several leading organizations and designed and built new museums and nonprofits from the ground up, overseeing more than $400 million in construction and capital projects, and assisted on additional projects totaling more than a billion dollars. Rich, welcome to Artscoping. Thanks, Max. I'm happy to be here. As a person of such variety, you have a unique perspective on museums because you're an expert in design and architecture, construction, operations, and an expert in digital communication. I'm going to pick your brain on both fronts today. I hope that'll be okay. Sure. I don't know that I'm an expert, but I have a lot of experience. Well, you play one on TV, so close enough. <laughs> so it's been a very interesting few months since the pandemic descended last March, largely because it's been dismaying to watch public art museums contort themselves into propping up a myth that big shows and big crowds are sufficient to put gas in the tank or electric current in the battery. I'm hoping you can share with our listeners some of the realities of museum revenue sources that have been revealed in full glory during the pandemic. What is actually behind how museums operate financially? Well, I mean, it's been a long time since museums as a whole got thrown such a complex curveball. It has been interesting watching them respond. I, I haven't seen what I would have expected, at least from some of them, is the level of innovation. But the details of how the finances work, and I'm pretty art museum-centric, so I'm sure it's different in the history and science areas. But a few years ago, I think the last study I looked at was that $7.5 of income to about $52 of expense per visitor. And when I tell people that, most people are completely shocked. Most people who work in museums are completely shocked when they hear that. And one of the things I'm the most proud of my work when I was working at the Broad was getting that ratio to $8.5 of income for $16 of expense. That is a very unique museum and doesn't do a lot of things that museums should do and have done. One of the exceptions is interesting pieces of that is it's a free general admission museum, so still making $8.50. The blockbuster myth I think it's complex. I'm not sure I completely agree with you that it can't put a decent amount of gas in the tank. But I have an interesting story. When I was at the Albright Knox, my first museum job, they were finishing a renovation. So that was my first bit of construction experience. The first show that they had after they opened was a Monet. And in Buffalo, that was a knock it out of the park blockbuster. And they were not ready. They didn't have the right staffing for the lines that were out the door and around the block, and the blocks up there are pretty big. Um, <laughs> so they were freaking out, trying to solve all the problems. This was, you know, pre-easy digital ticketing and things like that, you know. And they did really well. They made a ton of money. For the next 
18 months before they did another blockbuster. They looped around and they fixed a bunch of the problems. I think the next show was a Modigliani. It did really well, not as good as Monet, but really well. They did a good job marketing it, you know. And then it continued that cycle. And the problem that I saw in hindsight is 2020. And I was only the chief information officer at the time, so I wasn't really in a command position to actually have as strong an influence being both that position and new to the museum field. But as a technologist, I dig into what the organization that I'm working for is doing and museum. I loved it. It was great to work on that versus some of my past banking or manufacturing. So they kept fixing these problems and eventually they weren't making any money off the blockbusters. (laughs) And to me, the lesson there is if you do it right, you actually can make a decent amount of money and feed the things that, in that case, in the case of the Albright Knox, you know, they're known for in the past and contemporarily doing really bleeding edge contemporary art. Now, Buffalo is not New York. It's a Rust Belt town. It's very, it's fairly conservative. So those shows are not going to get supported by the general masses. And, you know, some of the money from that, for that organization is tax money, not a lot of it, but to me, you have to balance that out, right? It's not wrong to do a blockbuster per se, in my mind, but you have to stretch yourself to do it. You can't make it easy you have to realize that it's one of the harder things that your institution is going to do, especially if you want to make a profit. If you're smart about it, I think there's a way to take those kinds of shows, which aren't bad shows. They're not, I don't think you could look down on the academic quality of them, but they were clearly designed to bring in the masses and make money. And that should have allowed the institution to do the bleeding edge, dig up the artists, contemporary shows, along with some of their other funding, you know, not exclusively, but to make that work. And I I think it's, you know, it should be all part of the pie. Yeah. But Rich, the pie is actually a sugar high because if you dedicate yourself to these blockbusters that come and go, you are inevitably neglecting a lot of the rest of the mission of the museum to throw all hands on deck to do them. And then you're addicted. Well, I mean, you can only do what you have money for. That's the reality of it. And while it would be great, you know, if this was Europe and the museums were all publicly funded in a way, although, you know, during times like the last four years, it might not have been so great, <laughs> you know, in the sense of having pure public funding, right? You want to have that kind of independence as well. What I'm saying is kind of agrees with you. You can't throw all your resources at it. You have to be very diligent about drawing a line so that it doesn't consume your organization. Because when it starts consuming your organization, you don't make any money either. You also lose the plot because you're not constituted, to your point, to be an entertainment center with a collection attached. You're meant to be an educational institution that does stuff that is at times more compelling, fine. But this is a topic you and I could spend four days on. (laughs) Instead, let's tack with the winds and agree that these old buildings, like the Albright Knox has a very beautiful old part of it, are old buildings. And they are trying to cope today with new demands for a reduced carbon footprint, for enhanced access to digital tools. And now we lay on top of it and a whole new HEPA filter system for clean air. So what are these places supposed to do, these older buildings? Well, fortunately, the Albright is actually doing an expansion. So that will allow them to upgrade some of the things. I mean, but when I got there, yeah, you're right. The buildings are old. The uh, main building is a 1905. It has stone foundations and 
it's like walking into a dungeon in certain parts. There was no fiber into the building when I got there. And there's two ways to approach it, right? There is the method which was underway when I got to the Albright, which was a renovation. And you take advantage of that and you put in the things that you need for that particular era. You can actually see it in an institution like that where they use the you know old gas pipes to run the wires for the new lights. Buffalo was an early city that was electrified because of Niagara Falls. You use those cycles and, you know, obviously because of the way museum funding works here, the money that comes in when you're naming a building after someone, their new one is a guy from L.A. who lives in L.A., originally from Buffalo, and it's going to cost them north of $125 million if they do a really good job. But at the same time, they're putting in a lot of things that are going to be in the building. Obviously, there's the general technologies like solar, but there's also, you know, the ability, like in a place like Buffalo, to sink a well and actually use the heat and temperature difference between the surface and underground to change the, you know, heating method so that you're not just using electric mm -hmm. and, and fossil fuels to actually, you know, change the temperature. Is that doing well, Rich? Because I built a building in Indiana in the woods in the 100-acre sculpture park that was geothermally heated, and it worked pretty well, but certainly not to museum standards. It wouldn't hit 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 50% relative humidity. So um, is that improving? I, I haven't seen one deployed recently, so I don't know. And But I haven't also, I haven't heard any complaints about it. This is the first time I've heard that. So that's an interesting, I don't know off the top yeah. of my head, unfortunately. We were ambitious enough in Indiana where we put on our dashboard, which you remember, yep. that 2007 dashboard, the real-time readout <laughs> yep. of temperature and relative humidity in our special exhibition gallery, which drove my registrars absolutely nuts. But right. it was a truth-telling. So right. let's talk about something else, truth-telling, because you mentioned remodeling and renovation and revision of an institution. But given where we are today with the impact of COVID that's going to last for a while in terms of audience participation, the hemorrhaging of members and patrons, and revenue from a variety of sources. Why should museums be building anything now? <laughs> In other words, shouldn't they all be trying to say, now what do we do with what we have? Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of ego out there. There's a... Yes, that is the currency. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's, that's the main reason these buildings get built. Somebody wants to put their Well, let's on pause it. on that, Rich. When you just said that, that's a very radical perspective. You're saying that the reason museums continue to grow or die, which was an expression used in the 80s around museums, you think that's still the currency? I think it's changing, but I do think that the business model is such that they need to. It's not a simple equation, as you know, having sat in the chair. You have to be perceived as moving the world forward. And architecture is definitely an inspirational and one way of doing that. One of the reasons that I decided to consult after building seven different museum-related construction projects from the inside was that it is the one place that the museums spend an enormous amount of money and that they really don't know what they're doing when they're spending right. it. Just a little bit of help, a little bit of guidance can save tens, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. It's pretty easy to earn the fee, I guess is what I'm saying, because museums go out there and they build an expansion, and usually the people that are responsible for it have done it zero times. 
and where you know when they spend a million dollars on a show which is a lot right to install and market a show they have the experience of having done it hundreds and hundreds of times but they go out and they spend 400 million dollars in a case like the academy museum and they have a team of people who have never done it before although in that case the board had a lot of people who had built things over and over and over again being a movie museum that's pretty much the model right there usually is no one on the team who has built anything. It does sound a little pathological in the sense that mm -hmm. the objectives of growing are to keep up with the Joneses. The people running it aren't experienced in the activities around building it. And the outcomes and outputs are sort of described, but not 100% assumed and understood. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, and I, but I also think it's like there's a momentum around it that no one can stop. Like I don't, right. I don't. I'm not saying. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's one of those things that both is going to happen and kind of has to. I think to keep not just the museum but the community healthy. It's almost like you do need these things to refresh each generation and to kind of reinvigorate. You know, we know that a lot of it is. You know, when the city is putting money into that, they're trying to create jobs. They're trying to boost the economy. You know, it's a cycle that mm -hmm. most of it has nothing to do with the fact that it's a museum and they're going to hang art on the wall or they're going to put in education. But that's a benefit that comes out of it. I think the, the cost-benefit ratio is a little skewed badly. Right. But it's kind of going to happen. And so as an institution, you have to look at it and say, okay, how do we do it the best way possible? Because, it, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a practical person, right? I realize that it's not logically the best way to go about it but i don't see a better way of doing what the museums have to do given the fact that things like blockbusters are not the answer and pure philanthropy is not the answer and government funding not the answer it's a combination of all these things and one of the things that drives that is building things it's a lot of money to spend for not a lot of benefit when you look at the mission of the museum but in the case of a building i kind of think of it a little more holistically that it's benefiting a larger group of people than the people that even use the institution. So it sounds like a sports stadium. Yeah, it's, it's very much like that. Yep. Yep. And we, we all look at it. We, yeah, we look at it. And we go, oh, that's a food doggle. And it is, but it's also, if you don't do it, it's a problem. After leading a consortium of museums in San Diego's Balboa Park, you were deputy director of the Broad Art Museum in Los Angeles, and you really ensured it's smooth passage from concept to realization. So you dealt with a whole bunch of challenges without flinching. Can you summarize the difference between running a private museum project and a public museum project? Uh, I often, when I was giving tours and telling people about how we did it at the Broad, I said, this does not really apply to most places because, <laughs> you know, there, there is only one Eli and he does things his way. He can because it's his money. And that's really, to me, the difference. If that museum, meaning Eli, wants to do something, they do it and they do it right. And it may be painful in the sense that he doesn't want to spend a lot of money doing it, but he's known for that. And so if you take that into account, you know, it's just, there's a whole list of things that museums have to do that we didn't do. And that's why you could create that ratio, if you think correctly about it, of $8.5 to $16 income versus expense versus seven and a half to 52, even though the museum was free. 
you don't have to have the overhead if you're smart about it. So things like, you know, having a development department. Well, we decided that, you know, with a little bit of support, the development department was the director, right? She had one, essentially one funder. We did do a little bit of fundraising, you know, and she had to meet with them every day. That was her job mm-hmm. besides curating the show. And she left the rest of it to me, you know, was run everything else, Rich. Don't, you make sure that when I want to hang the show, there's no problem. If you don't try to take the model from another place and apply it, if you look at each museum as an individual place and say, what is unique about this situation, this collection, this thing? And then you work backwards from there and say, what should we do? As opposed to saying, what is everybody else doing? This is how it's done. That was the feeling I got working in a private museum where you could look at it and say, I'm going to do this the way it should be done for this place within the construct of some standards that exist within the museum, you know, so you still want to care for your collection, but just because you could, in the sense, Eli has a lot of money, that doesn't mean you build a conservation department, but it lets you redefine what your infrastructure is, including the people. Right. And so we opened that museum with 25 full-time staff, which is crazy. I don't recommend it, but you could do it because you could say, I'm not going to do this. Because you have so many masters when you're in a public institution saying, no, you need to cross your T this way and dot your I that way. You can't do it fancy. And I really liked it. I mean, it was addictive in a way. Sure. Because BPOC was not that. BPOC, I was mm-hmm. dealing with 27 directors, 27 boards and their whole teams And, you know, as you know, dealing with one board is pretty hard to kind of get things moving in a particular direction. That situation was impossible. (laughs) So one thing to note, which is the ratio you're describing of income to expense is incredibly frictionless because most museums in AAMD are more like 80 to $90 expense per $4 of revenue from tickets. So you're describing something quite unusual. Now, you've worked with Starkitect's. You've worked with architects who aren't brand names. What's the difference in how they relate to the local architect who's actually the one responsible for getting the building built with the clerk of the works and the construction manager? Maybe the, the high-level way to describe it would be, in terms that art museum people would understand, is it's like an artist versus a graphic designer. An mm-hmm. artist does what they want, and a graphic designer should do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> so an architect does what they want. And they often will walk when you don't agree with them. They, and they will fight and fight and fight over minute details. Projects that I've worked on where usually the star architect is not there because they have many projects going on. So they have a project architect that's working directly with you who's one of their top people. That person usually is somewhat terrified of deviating from the boss's mm-hmm. vision because it's an artistic vision. And so they will fight and fight and fight. And that's a big part of the role of managing a project like that is finding the ways to get things done because it's not the relationship that you have with the architect who's building your house where you say, this is what I want. You know, that's where it gets really complicated for these museums that have never built anything, right? They've never built it and they're just going to go and spend $100 million the easiest way for me to get work is just to email their board members and say that. <laughs> that now that is subversive. Simple, right? It's a yes. simple marketing. Let me ask you about another form of subversion. 
which <laughs> was when when we did an opt-in loyalty program mm. called DMA Friends at the Dallas Museum of Art, a free membership platform. What are your thoughts on the potential of opt-in loyalty programs to draw people's loyalty to institutions? I think it's a huge untapped potential. When I was at BPOC right towards the end, we were trying to do it for a multi-institutional model. It ended up failing because of provincial politics, you know, which I think is what happens within institutions as well. There's a fear factor. In the case of EPOC, you know, it was the pie is X size, right? And everybody got a slice of it. Well, when you layer in a program, it costs money. So some of that pie has got to go to the program. But our point was when we modeled it, if you did it right, the pie got much bigger. Everybody's slice would have gotten bigger. But the fear factor of the unknown kept them from doing it. And they rolled out essentially a pass, which was what they already had, you know, and it was like, you actually have to spend money on marketing. If you can spend more marketing, the great art, the great science, the great education that museums are doing, they would get more support. It's a self-fulfilling thing. So many times I've been in board meetings where the board is saying, we should do this. And the museum is saying, yeah, we do that. But nobody knows. With the digital realm in which you are so fluent, what are boards thinking about what their aspirations might be versus what the staff is actually devoting its time to? What's the disconnect there, if any? So many board members are, and it's not, I don't say it with a bad way, but they're business oriented and they're thinking, you know, we should be not losing $40 per visitor, but making $40 per visitor. That's not going to happen. There's a lot of grind where the director and the CFO or COO is, you know, is getting beat up. And that's one of the things I didn't have to deal with much at the Broad or actually at the Academy. That wasn't the issue per se. So I think they spend a lot of time on that. It's not that museums shouldn't be responsible about how they spend their money, but you have to start from a realistic standpoint when you're looking at a ratio of average, you say 90 and 80 for some of the AMD stuff. 50 to $8 or $7, you're just not going to make a profit. So you got to do a good job, but you can't spend your time imagining that you're going to be some kind of a exception. People are as in tune to the digital technology as they are in their life. As people are approaching that in their life, you know, boards are turning younger because new people are joining. That's changing the ratio, right? People are just more aware of technology and they expect museums to be just doing it. Museums, on the other hand, they're missing a lot of it. The best example that I have from my experience was when mobiles were relatively new. That was when I started BPOC and founded it. Get a bunch of museums to do the same thing technology-wise was quite the challenge, especially when they spend most of their time trying to make up the $40 that they don't get from the visitors. They're out there trying to raise money and make payroll every day. They were my board, a board of museum directors, to get their attention focused on mobile, the only thing that I found that worked was to give them iPhones. So I just bought them all iPhones. And then they started telling me what they wanted to be mobile in their museum. Because then they understood. And that's essentially, if you don't know about it, if you haven't used it, how's a board or a director supposed to get their staff to do it? They either have to have a super high level of trust in a particular person who has a vision and can do it. And in the IT world, as you probably know, I mean, you, when you found one, you kept him. They're rare. Most IT people are reporting to the CFO 
and they're managed as a cost center, not an opportunity center. And as we know now with COVID, technology is what makes our businesses run, period. There is nothing that a museum does, whether it's hanging art on the wall or giving a class to kids that is not connected to the technology that the museum has. And if the technology sucks, those things will not be as good as they could be. They may still be good, you may, but they won't be as good as they could be. We need to figure out a way to develop the generation of strategic technology thinkers that can run business. And I've kind of seen it through my career arc that the people that are really good at that, and you were instrumental in making one a deputy director, but they've been moving up the ranks from technology to deputy director. And I think that that trend's going to continue, and that will be how this stuff improves. But here's a fundamental question, which MuseWeb, which you run, is part of answering. It's been 25 years since we started the Art Museum Image Consortium with David Bierman and Jennifer Trant. And the idea was a shared content platform that bridged museums. And even Google Arts and Culture hasn't done that. It's still individual identities, individual institutions, individual collections, which live in splendid isolation. And it's as old school and self-absorbed as maintaining separate volumes on a bookshelf. So my question to you, sir, what will it take to motivate museums to work together on content development that is a shared universe? They won't. I mean, that's the one thing that BPOC taught me was that if you want them to do that, you have to do it for them. When a director gets up in the morning and they're thinking, how am I going to make payroll? I need to get this money. Even for like a place where we were trying to make the pie bigger using technology, using shared stuff, it was really hard unless I got somebody else to pay for it. There were a few that were at an innovative COO or deputy director or director like yourself, you know, who just kind of push the envelope and again, look at each institution and each opportunity as unique as opposed to just how it's done. Whenever I could pay for it using somebody else's money, I could get them to collaborate to no end. And it worked fantastic. It saved them a lot of money when we did. But even when you did that, when you saved them a lot of money and they could see it, they didn't initiate generally. It was only because of, you know, and I'm not bragging, but like strategic leadership on my part where I'm saying, okay, here's an opportunity. Here's a funding source. Let me explain to a bunch of directors how it's going to work and then write the letter of support for them to sign that I got the project going. That's how it worked. As we know from our numbers, from the numbers we've been talking about today, the museums don't make money. So they're getting their money from philanthropy primarily and then from investments. If the philanthropist wants to keep building a website for 17 different institutions and starting from scratch, or for that matter, building a building for 14 different <laughs> institutions and starting from scratch each time. And then they want to say, you should run this like a business. That's ridiculous. They should create some of these organizations that do the stuff that museums don't do well as a core business, especially small institutions. I mean, even the Broad, we had one IT person. She had to code the website, help me with my mouse and projector in a meeting, you know, manage the lighting system, buy the new PCs, install, you know, I mean, how many people, I mean, she was amazing. She did it all. 
and now she's a IT director at a big institution. But how many people like that are there? There's not a lot of them. You need to have someone who's specialized in building a website who also knows museums, right? And that's all they do. And if a funder is going to keep funding one website per institution, that's crazy. If you think about it, you know, if you if you write it in big letters, put it up on the building and say that, funders are like, "Well, yeah, that's not a good idea." But then they go and <laughs> but then they go and do it, right? They keep doing it over and over. But Rich, here's the solution. <laughs> we have you to tell the truth, <laughs> to tell these boards, to tell these directors, to tell these staffs. And for that reason, I'm very grateful you made time for today's conversation. And thank you so very much. Thank you. As always, it's fun to talk to you. Probably won't get any jobs now, but you know. Hey. Um, <laughs> Thanks a lot, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking today with Rich Cherry, CEO of Museum Operations and co-chair of MuseWeb. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.